This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In the 10 years since the financial crisis, we've seen a slow recovery here in the U.S. It's one that is seeing growth at one end of the economic spectrum and not so much at the other. And according to our next guest, that in part may deal with the concept of economic value. Mariana Mazzucato is a professor and chair in economics of innovation and public value program at University College in London. She's also founder and director of the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. She says in order to see a fairer economy, we may need to go back and reclaim the true meaning of value. She believes that the meaning of value has been skewed in recent times. She talks about it in her new book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. And it's a pleasure to have her joining us right now. Mariana, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, how much has this issue been enhanced because of what we saw a decade ago with the the financial crisis and the recession? Well, first of all, I I think it's really key to remember that so many of the causes of the crisis, unfortunately, have not been uh, remedied. We are, in fact, I think, uh, brewing the next crisis, which was, of course, uh, the previous one was caused by uh, private debt, not public debt. And the ratio of private debt to disposable income is back at record levels. We haven't reformed finance. We still have most of the financial sector really just financing itself, what we call FIRE, Uh, finance, insurance, and real estate. (laughs) And this is why it continues to outpace the growth of the rest of the economy. And then in industry, we have an overly financialized business sector, increasingly using profits not to fund, you know, actual activities like production, research and development, training for workers, but just purchasing back their own shares to boost stock stock prices and uh, stock options and, surprise, surprise, executive pay. So this is really problematic, right? So the economy is still sick, and this is worrying 10 years after the crisis. And what I try to do in the book is bring this back down to the fact that we have a problematic uh, thermometer, if you want, if we talk about sickness. We don't really understand how to measure value in the economy, so we don't even realize how sick the economy is. And I bring that back down to the fact that in modern uh, economic theory, we basically even stop debating value, so economics stop talking about value, and value went to business schools. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to dismiss business schools, but, um, you know, shareholder value, value change, shared value, these are a bit flimsy concepts. They're not actually related back to what's happening in production. And what's quite striking is that, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, but even the physiocrats before them, the 1700s, their understanding of value came back down to objective conditions of the division of labor, Um, how machinery was affecting wages, including also the profit-wage relationship, which, by the way, is record levels. Um, Investment is down, but profits are up. And currently, instead, in economics, we don't even use the word value. We just call it Econ 101, and we allow prices, the price system itself, to determine value. So what we include in GDP is basically things that are priced. This is why, you know, if you marry your cleaner... Uh, GDP will go down because all of a sudden something that was being done and paid for no longer is paid for, but it's still being done. And when we pollute, GDP goes up. But I also argue that a key issue is that what we're including in GDP, because we've confused what is value creation versus value extraction, we're confusing rents with profits. Right. And this whole concept of rents as value extraction is what I try to unpick. And I do it sector by sector, so not just finance, but also 
pharmaceutical industry and the innovation economy. So do you think that then because we have lost this kind of understanding of value that potentially, and I, I, I throw that in, at the, the front of this, that potentially when we have the next recession, which we know we'll have at some point, that it has the potential of being worse? Absolutely. And I must say that a huge difference, by the way, with the previous uh, financial crisis is the wave of populism. Imagine the previous financial crisis with the kinds of governments we currently have, you know, all over Europe. Uh, Let's just use the word. These are semi-fascist governments. I'm Italian, and the current government in Italy is extremely problematic in how it's thinking about immigrants. And, you know, we all know what's also happening in the U.S. Uh, We might not want to comment so explicitly on that. But anyway, imagine a financial crisis with the level of fear that has been instilled in people also in terms of the kind of lack of solidarity (laughs) between human beings that we're seeing. So in that sense, politically, I think it's really important, actually, for for even economists to be talking about this, because we try to sort of shy away from these more political areas. But a financial crisis with the kinds of super conservative and fearful governments that we're seeing pop up everywhere with this wave of populism Mm -hmm. could bring us back to an era that, you know, we should all remember very well in the 1930s. How how much is the want to really, uh, for many people, play on value extraction, maybe to a degree also enhancing the economic divide we're seeing here in the United States and other locations? Absolutely. So the whole kind of 1%, 99% dilemma in terms of inequality, I actually think has been fueled by this confusion. Let me just give you some examples. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Piketty's great work yeah. on inequality, yep. but yep. he also looks at you know particular changes in tax regimes. Yep which fueled um, inequality, and he singles out things like, you know, low capital gains tax. That's particularly the tax, which there's no reason for it to be very low, right, because it's just basically a a tax on quick trades. Now, um, what we want to be doing is nurturing long-termism in the economy. We know that innovation, a key driver of growth, requires that kind of Mm long-termism. And yet, uh, it was actually the National Venture Capital Association which in the end of the 1970s, just after they had formed, basically lobbied government to reduce capital gains by 50%. That's what they achieved, 50% reduction in just four years in the name of innovation. So in the name of value creation, they lobbied for a regressive (laughs) uh, tax, which people like Warren Buffett very honestly said, why did you do that? I didn't even look at capital gains. I invest when there's an opportunity. But that, you know, also reduced government revenues, which then, you know, cuts had to be done elsewhere. We also have all sorts of uh, problematic tax policies like the patent box uh, policy, which reduces tax, um, tax, uh, taxes on revenues earned on patents, which makes no sense because patents are already uh, monopolies for 20 years. There's no reason that a policymaker should have to reduce the taxation on monopoly profits. But again, that reduces uh, revenue in governments, which then feel like they have to make cuts elsewhere, but also the corporate governance structure. So the whole maximization of shareholder value is based on this false assumption and problematic notion of value, which doesn't really understand the kind of stakeholder-driven value creation process. In other words, collectively created values through different types of actors in the economy, the labor force, of course, but also all these public uh, funds, which have actually fueled growth in some of the most innovative industries. We shouldn't forget that everything that makes our smartphones smart and not stupid were publicly financed. You know, right. internet, GPS, touchscreen display, Siri. Um, you know, even Tesla received the early stage financing from um, from government. 
um, and fracking <laughs> receive massive amounts of government finance, um, regardless of what one thinks about that. So actually, value in the economy is absolutely collectively co-created. Instead, this whole notion of maximizing shareholder value yeah. ends up actually rewarding a very narrow group of people in the economy. And I'm not saying that they don't create value shareholders, but they're absolutely not the only ones. And this is why you get these really crazy also, <laughs> I must say, you know, I can't think of any other word but crazy uh, statements by people like uh, the CEO of Nostrum just two days ago, a pharmaceutical company, saying with a straight face, you know, that the 400% increase in an antibiotic drug that happened last week was absolutely the right thing to do um, because he had a moral imperative to increase the prices of drugs. He believes this is true of the whole sector in order to please shareholders. Well, and it, so, and, it, and it goes back to the to the comments of Martin Shkreli, you know, with with, with, the, with the pricing increases that, that he wanted to put in. And I guess to even to a degree with the EpiPen as well. Absolutely. And, you know, in the book, I actually begin with um, the statement, similar uh, astounding statement by Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who, and this is, again, just kind of unpicking this notion of value seen from different directions. He said, Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. Now, this was one year after the crisis. He said that. Um, So 2009, and we all know how much Goldman Sachs and other large investment banks, uh, you know, took massive risks, hid those risks in in terms of how the risks were spliced and packaged in (laughs) in difficult ways. And that was absolutely one of the massive causes of the crisis. And yet just one year later, with a straight face, he says that. And that's the reason he was able to say that, you know, not jokingly, was that, in fact, how we measure value and hence also productivity is by prices. So the prices, of course, of Goldman Sachs workers are extremely high. They are earning very high salaries, but it becomes a tautology. Look at me. I earn so much, I must be valuable. Hence, I must earn very much. (laughs) You know, I mean, it just becomes a circular reasoning. The opposite, by the way, happens with government. So because you don't actually measure government value, what government produces, because so many of the goods are actually free, just think of, you know, healthcare, at least in civilized countries, we have free health care. But, you know, think in the U.S., you know, public education, public infrastructure, lots of it we're not explicitly paying for. So that doesn't go into GDP, but the right. costs of building it do, right? So the salaries of teachers does go into GDP, but the value produced of high-quality public education doesn't. Right. It's actually impossible, just statistically, without it making any judgment, normative judgment, it's impossible to actually show the productivity of government institutions because we're not able to actually, um, you know, do what uh, Lloyd Blankstein did, which is just to look at the uh, <laughs> um, uh, costs. Let of, me you know, let me ask you output. let me ask you a question because because you're based in London. So how different is this scenario? I mean, obviously, a lot of what you're talking about is what we see here in the United States. How similar or different are, are these kind of scenarios overseas? Let's say in London or in Europe right now. Yeah, so Europe is very different, one country from another. And so London, if anything, has tried to, at least, not always successfully, copy the U.S. model. So I call that the Anglo-Saxon, again, maximization of shareholder value model, also a model where the banking system itself has kind of divorced itself from financing real stuff, (laughs) again, financing itself. Um, And corporate governance, again, uh, you know, quite problematic. What does differ the two countries, of course, is the welfare state, even though one could argue it's, it's being a bit dismantled over the last 10 years in the U.K., it still does exist. People do not. I mean, I'm in San Francisco right now for the third leg of my book launch, and I'm just astounded. The level, 
you know, it's not just the number of homeless people yeah. in San Francisco, which is astounding. I mean, it's, it's really shocking. It's, it's much worse than D.C. and New York. But, you know, these people are sick. You see, I saw someone with elephantitis on, oh, on the wow. streets the other day. It is heart-wrenching. You do not see this in Europe. So then, Europe is Europe has has decided collectively that you know this is what tax revenue is for, and it's actually better to pay your taxes in order to live in a functional society where everyone is taken care of. And on top of that, of course, there's incentives. It's not as if it's you know socialism. Now in Scandinavia, I do think that there's also um, an experiment with with something that I think is very respectable, which we don't have in the UK, which is this whole issue of corporate governance, which is much more collective. So, you know, trade union representatives on the boards of companies. These are companies, yep. by the way, that are very successful, but they decide together how to think about the future, future opportunities of the company, how to invest in new areas. And if workers do have to sacrifice, perhaps for a period of time, lower wages, that is in exchange for something, for example, increased training programs that make them more adaptable, for example, to future technology. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have that in the U.S. or really in, um, in the U.K. So how then do you, do you see us starting to turn the corner in this? Because part of me would say that we are going to be reliant on, on our government to be able to do that. And you mentioned the case of fracking. Uh, obviously, that's something that at the state level uh, really it, it has been a benefit for some of these companies. But obviously, there are a lot of elements of this that, that go to the federal level. And there's obviously a concern in this country right now by a lot of people uh, about what Congress and what our government is doing and whether or not they are truly doing things for us that that there's actually a benefit for the people that that they are representing absolutely and again this fuels populism doesn't it you feel that the whole political process is not serving you um i'm not sure if the first part of your question actually was going into what i'm about to say so forgive me if it's unrelated but i thought you were sort of touching on it you know, what's absolutely astounding with these public investments is that they are actually also taking on huge risks. And one sure, way yeah. to actually also get people to better understand what they're also getting from them is for the government to, to do the second step, which is not just to finance the Internet. You know, Google's algorithm was financed by the public sector, NSF, uh, most of the big new renewable technology, uh, sorry, renewable energy uh, wave is also being fueled by international public bodies but also for the government to explicitly see itself as an investor of first resort and perhaps also to get some portfolio thinking right. as the VC industry has. So, you know, Bosolindra, huge loss, 500 million um, public uh, taxpayer-funded failure. Uh, Bosolindra and Tesla were financed more or less with the same amount of money. Um, so Tesla received a $465 million guaranteed loan. Yeah. And it was, it was fascinating how the opposite happened. And, you know, the people were right to actually get quite uh, uh, angry with what happened with Solyndra. But, you know, the opposite happened, meaning that what Obama should have done was, again, think about it in terms of a portfolio. What he did was he said to Tesla, if you don't pay back the loan, $465 million, uh, we get 3 million shares in your company. And why would you want 3 million shares in a company that doesn't pay back its loan? Probably because it's not doing too well. Yeah. Had he said the opposite, you know, we're making this high-risk investment. We know that for every success, there will be inevitable failures. I'm talking downstream here, not the upstream basic research, but the, these kinds of downstream loans. Then we will, in fact, take out some shares if you are successful. The price per share 
went from 9 to 90 between 2009-2013 for Tesla. Yeah. Multiply that by the $3 million he wanted to take out. That would have more than paid for the Solyndra failure and the next round of investments. And, you know, people who are funding this would sort of, you know, also feel, A, less uncomfortable with government yeah. making these kind of bets in the future because government does make the bets, but also kind of see a return because this also means that the public purse isn't constantly just bailing out the banks, bailing out the failures in the real economy, like the automobile industry, which was also bailed out, but also getting some of the upside. And that upside could be used not only to fund the next round of these investments, but also to make sure we're properly funding infrastructure, public education, public health. But you also say in the book about the idea of experimentation and the fact that with some of these these bets uh, that a, a certain level of risk is probably not a, a bad thing, that sometimes every once in a while you do need a failure in the process if it is taking you down the path of finding the actual success, correct? Absolutely. And so, you know, this is also what we must learn, of course, from the Soviet system. The top-down model doesn't work. You want to both be setting some, you know, public, bold missions, if you want. You know, the moonshot example, which I think is really useful, because getting to the moon required lots of different sectors. It wasn't just uh, aeronautics, lots of bottom-up experimentation, of which most of these uh, projects also, well, not most, but many failed. So the willingness to take risks also in public and private institutions in order to achieve a really bold goal. That was a technological goal, but think of the kind of social goals we have today around the kind of SDG-related issues in all these countries. But what government instruments should be used for, then, is to really also nurture that bottom-up experimentation. Um, So on the one hand, we need sort of, let's just call it top-down, big thinking, you know, moonshots around renewable energy, around the future of healthcare, the aging crisis, etc., but it cannot be a top-down then process. That doesn't work. Innovation completely thrives through feedback effects, experimentation, serendipity. You know, the search for one thing leads to the discovery of another. Think of Viagra. That was initially for the heart, and then something else popped up. That's, <laughs> that's quite common. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because you also have uh, a conversation about uh, the reinvestment of profits and, and, and the issues with, with share buybacks, which a lot of companies obviously are, are more than willing to do in this day and age right now. Absolutely. And that's what I meant by these two faces of financialization. So on the one hand, the first phase of financialization is the financial sector itself being obsessed with itself, financing itself instead of growth in the real economy. Right. Of course, there's some exceptions, but this is a trend. You see this with the data. Um, and the other one is industry itself, whether it's in IT, energy, uh, pharmaceuticals, increasingly using uh, income profits to either disperse to shareholders um, through dividends or through share buybacks to, again, boost stock prices, which eventually also can benefit, uh, you know, the top uh, uh, shareholders and also the managers who are paid through stock options. Now, that is not a problem if it's held in check and done for the right reasons. But often when you talk to the companies that are doing this the most, and we shouldn't forget that this is literally sometimes over 100% of net income is dispersed in terms of dividends, and uh, share buybacks, so a huge amount. They say this is the right thing to do because there's no opportunities for investment. And the top buybackers are in pharmaceuticals and in energy. And, you know, you've got to be kidding. There's no opportunities. Of course there are. But we should also have conditions, you know, attached to this issue of reinvestment of profits. This is, by the way, where we got 
Bell Labs from. You know, Bell Labs was one of the most innovative private sector R&D laboratories inside AT&T. It actually came from an era where government was very worried about this problem of reinvestment, right. and they made it a condition for AT&T to retain its, its monopoly status, not from God, but from the government, yeah. <laughs> uh, to reinvest those profits back into the real economy, back into innovation, and big innovation beyond telecoms. So Bell Labs was an answer to that pressure, which I argue is pressure in order to create a symbiotic, mutualistic ecosystem, a partnership, as opposed to a parasitic uh, kind of predator-prey kind of partnership. And all this kind of trendy talk about public-private partnerships and dynamic ecosystems, you know, any biologist would ask you to define what you mean. What kind of ecosystem are you talking about? That's not necessarily a positive uh, attribute. So how to really rethink these relationships so they're dynamic and they're interesting and the public bit isn't just de-risking the private bit that then just takes off and does what it wants, but public-private partnerships could be structured in much more dynamic and interesting ways where the first P of the public-private can actually also set a direction for change, use its instruments to drive in the private sector, but always trying to produce also public value. Right. You know, what kind of healthcare system? You don't just do what the U.K. did, which was to uh, do these PFI schemes, you know, private financing initiatives, uh, bringing in the private sector into healthcare, and then just kind of not, you know, keeping a, a, a tight attention on what kind of healthcare system was actually being produced. Right, right. I uh, have about a minute left, but I did want to touch on, and you touched on it briefly before, the issues surrounding executive pay and, and a lot of the, these executives which take companies down a, a poor path and they end up having that golden parachute that they walk out the door with. How do you deal with that? Well, that's, you know, that's exactly the, the point um, that I think is really critical and I was trying to make before, which is this notion of maximization of shareholder value, which then justifies um, you, you know, a- areas like the share buybacks, which do boost executive pay, because don't forget that pay is yep. mainly now linked to stock options, yep. um, is actually founded on a false premise that shareholders are the only ones who don't have a guaranteed rate of return. So if you look at Michael Jensen's work in the 1980s, there's this concept of the residual claimant. Sorry to get too technical here, but it's quite interesting. The idea is that the shareholders are the ones who are risking the most because everyone else in the economy has some sort of guaranteed rate. They don't, and so they only get the residual, what's left over in the end. And and so, you know, they're taking huge risks. So, of course, they, you know, should be getting the biggest share of the booty at the end if there is that residual. And this is just all false, right? There's no guaranteed rate of return for government. All those examples I gave you before were, you know, for every success like the Internet, there's many failures. For every Tesla, there's many cylindras. So kind of really debunking the false assumptions that have then allowed this, you know, problem of executive pay to happen, which really does have to do with corporate governance. We can't just talk about it as unfair or, you know, bonuses have to be kept in check. We have to debunk the false assumptions on top of which it's based. Mariana, thank you very much for your time. It's a fantastic book. All the best with it. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.